Oh, yet it's another Monday, Soulmates. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Plenty to discuss. We're following the latest in Arkansas as students are protesting a new education bill and what's being done in California when it comes to the good old reparations talk. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Fox Soul's Black Report. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm the Cordelia Corte. Plus, the racial discrimination lawsuit against ExxonMobil and what Shaq is doing for black mm -hmm. students. Aquaba, happy Ghana Independence Day to everyone across mm -hmm. the Ghanaian diaspora. They're the stories that impact our people. Your people, your people, That's right? right. That's All right. right. Happy Independence Day. It's our news, our views, and our voice. So topping the conversation today, members of the Congressional Black Caucus are demanding the Department of Justice provide details about the progress of President Biden's executive order on police accountability, which took effect back in 22. Now, the executive order advancing effective, accountable policing and criminal justice practices to enhance public trust and public Public safety called for creating guidelines and practices to deal with mental health crisis as well as enhancing security conditions in prisons and jails. Now, it also called for creating a national law enforcement accountability database to track officer misconduct. Now, the caucus confirms that the Department of Justice has received the letter and promises to respond. The department promises to respond. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, part of what we're seeing is the Congressional Black Caucus and the White House are really uh, organizing to uh, address issues related to bad policing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're not trying to get rid of policing. They're not trying to make this into a Democrat versus Republican issue, but they're trying to make this into a public safety issue. And really, uh, the best hope we have in terms of any kind of police reform at the moment uh, is through the president's executive order, uh, which instructed the Department of Justice to, to implement a whole number of reforms that are mm -hmm. within the authority of the president. Now, this still doesn't t touch local police departments mm -hmm. across the country, uh, which is what a lot of activists and organizers are fighting for. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you've heard people talk a lot about qualified immunity mm -hmm. and ending that, uh, or at least uh, heightening the threshold by which qualified immunity applies. Well, that's not on the table right now. So mm -hmm. the best we can do uh, is address issues related to bad policing. Yeah, I'm wondering if this is a Johnny come lately moment mm -hmm. um, in regards to, you know, have they sent out correspondence before and have not received any uh, responses? Or is this something that you're just kind of getting on the ball with? Yeah. So that that's that's my question because so much has transpired. I'm like, is this, this letter now? You know, so we'll see. We'll have to keep our eye on it as well. It feels like political theater. It does. We'll, we'll see. Well, meanwhile, on Capitol Hill over the weekend, Representative Hakeem Jeffries made headlines for not criticizing President Biden. Many political experts noticed that on Sunday, Jeffries refused to condemn the president over his pledge to sign a Republican-led effort to block a Washington, D.C. crime reform bill. Now, when asked if he feels as if the president pulled the rug from under him and his fellow House Democrats, Jeffrey said, not at all. Because, quote, we have the House, we have the Senate, and we have the White House. Okay, Hakeem. 
tell it like it is. I just love the name. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what excites me in the midst of the conversation. Them folks got to say Hakeem. Hakeem, <laughs> you know? Hakeem uh, Listen, I, I love the way he stands his ground. I, I love the way that, you know, he said what he said and, and he means it. And he really doesn't get swayed or he really doesn't get spooked, if you will, mm -hmm. by some of the threats, some of the rhetoric, some of the nonsense that comes from the other side. You know, and that's what I really am, am um, it makes me uh, secure in his presence, you know, it, being who he is and, and in the position that he's in, I feel good about what he's gonna be able to accomplish and, and move those conversations along. And it's also important to note that, you know, the president is not at odds with Mayor Muriel Bowser. Right. She vetoed the bill that the DC City Council passed. Mm -hmm. And so the mayor and the president are on the same side as the Republicans, whereas the Democrats are at odds with them. It's a very strange moment <laughs> when it comes there. to uh, issues related to police reform and the nation's capital. Earlier today, the White House met with five historic black speakers of state legislatures in our country. Julie Chavez Rodriguez, the director of the White House Office of uh, Intergovernmental Affairs and Domestic Policy Advisor Susan Rice sat with Speaker Chris Welch of Illinois, Speaker Rachel Talbot Ross of Maine, Speaker Adrian Jones of Maryland, and Speaker Joe Tate of Michigan, along with Speaker Carl Hasty of New York. Now, the discussion included common policy priorities such as economic security, health care, and housing, gun violence prevention, and criminal justice reform, plus voting rights and reproductive rights. In Little Rock, Arkansas, students have staged a walkout in protest of the district's new education bill. Now, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders <laughs> is an alum of the historic Arkansas Little Rock Central High School, where in 1957, nine black students known as the Little Rock Nine were taken to the class daily by the National Guard to protect them from white students threatening them. We'll see, uh, well, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, she signed a bill mm -hmm, that would mm -hmm. eliminate uh, critical race theory and the teaching of that piece of history to students. Now, the latest state to join the list that's banning CRT and AP black courses, here we go again. Here we go again. Uh, are we surprised? You know, uh, you may recognize that name, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, because she was, she serves the White House press secretary, one of them under uh, President Trump. Uh, and, you know, she is on that same wavelength mm -hmm. as Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida and, and other Republican governors that uh, don't want to teach black history in schools. This is what the this is really about. What I find fascinating about this story is that these students who walked out, in particular the students of color, um, they're only like one or two generations behind, you know, what their uh, grandparents or maybe at this point great grandparents who are still around may have experienced it. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the same energy. It's the same inspiration. It's the same situation. It's the same, um, you know, argument. And here are the children and grandchildren of those same students who were in those schools and, and had to fight to, to, to be in those schools just a generation ago. That's what I find fascinating. And now they don't want to teach gosh. that history. At all, you know, at all. I mean, just, just unconscionable. Let's go to California where a reparations task force will issue recommendations about how to compensate black residents for the harms caused by slavery and discrimination. So this task force is now assessing how reparations should be distributed, which could include direct payments and investments in education, health care, and home ownership for black communities. Now, after the task force delivers its final recommendation that's coming in July, it will be up to lawmakers to decide whether to adopt them. 
Joining us now to discuss this more in depth is the chair of the California Reparations Task Force, Dr. Camila Moore. Thank you for joining us here on Fox Souls Black Report. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Indeed. So Dr. Moore, can you tell us about AB 3121 and just the role of the California Repar Reparations Task Force? Sure. So California Reparations Task Force is an official state board or commission uh, that was signed into law via a statute called AB 3121. It was signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom September 30th, 2020. And so as a legislative advisory board or commission, you know, our role as a nine member task force is not only to study uh, potential reparation proposals for African-Americans with a special consideration for African-Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States, our role is actually to develop what reparation proposals might look like for the state legislature uh, to turn into legislation and then for Governor Gavin Newsom to turn into law. And so right now we're in the middle of the development stage. We've passed the study phase and now as nine members, we're discussing, debating, and even starting to determine you know, what those final reparation proposals will be for our final report, which will be released, as you all said, July 1 of this year. Yeah, a little history lesson here, as uh, you know, it's been noted in this argument that, or this discussion that California entered the union as a non-slave state. So why do you think California would owe anything to black folks? Well, it's twofold. One, uh, the task force disrupted the myth around the state of California's role in perpetuating slavery very early on in our work, in the beginning of the study phase. Mm -hmm. We invited experts to testify, in fact, that there were over 1,500 black folks who were actually enslaved in the, in the state of California. Not only that, the state of California enacted a fugitive slave law uh, in the state of California in 1852, two short years after the state was founded. And so that what that meant was if you so happen to be free and black in the state of California, after that fugitive slave law was enacted, which was actually much harsher than the federal fugitive slave law that existed at that same time, you could be rounded up and deported to be re-enslaved in the South or in some instances enslaved on California soil. In our historic nearly 500 page report, we actually included the stories of black people who were actually enslaved in the state of California and were deported to be re-enslaved in the South. But not only that, our nearly 500 page interim report not only talks about the state of California's role in perpetuating slavery, but we also focus on the badges and incidents of slavery that still linger on in this country and still negatively impact descendants of American slaves today. And that's actually how our report is organized. After the chapter on enslavement, the 12 remaining chapters describe those lingering badges and incidents of slavery that still impact us from racial terror, political disenfranchisement, racism in the environment and infrastructure, the pathologizing of the black family, you know, control over creative, cultural, intellectual life. Our last chapter is on the wealth gap. These are all describing these 12 major areas of systemic discrimination that impact us or those badges and incidents of slavery as we're characterizing them. Uh, and, and so, and, and thanks for, for sharing that. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit more about what some of the harms, uh, the, some of the harms done to black folks in California that the task force uh, is exploring uh, specifically? 
Yes. And so when we talk about, for instance, we are tasked with coming up with what potential compensation might look like uh, for state sanctioned atrocities. So we've actually worked with five uh, economists and public policy experts who are helping the nine member task force to uh, come up with a, a potential compensation amount for, again, state sanctioned atrocities where there's actual data and evidence to support a claim that the state of California specifically was responsible for these particular atrocities. So the experts we've been working with have identified five state sanctioned atrocities, health harms, devaluation of black businesses, mass incarceration and over-policing, housing discrimination, and unjust uh, property takings. These are five state sanctioned atrocities where there's data to support California's role in perpetuating, and we're working as a nine-member task force with these economists and public policy experts to identify a potential compensation amount for each of those five harms. yeah. So, you know, we mentioned uh, just a bit ago that this report should be done uh, this summer, top of July. Uh, when it is complete, w- what are you hoping that some of these findings show in regards to just this, this entire um, argument or discussion, if you will? Sure. Uh, just as in our interim report, I, I hope that our final report strengthens the case for reparations, of course, not only on the state level, mm-hmm. but primarily for on the federal level as well. In our interim report, not only in each of those chapters where we describe the badges and incidents of slavery, there's a, ch- there's a section that obviously clearly details California's role in perpetuating those badges and incidents. But in each chapter, there's also a federal section to clearly show the federal government's role in perpetuating these badges and incidents of slavery. And in the statute that created this task force, AB 3121, there's a provision in there that says, when the state of California provides compensation, that does not abdicate the federal government's role and their responsibility. Mm. As a task force, we understand that reparations for descendants of American slaves is primarily the federal government responsibility. That is the entity that has the budget, for instance, to close the racial wealth gap, which at this current rate would take over 228 years uh, to close. And so we really hope to send Mm -hmm. that message. And in our last hearing uh, that happened over the weekend, that's what we voted on. Um, In our final report, there will be a recommendation uh, to the state legislature to put pressure on Mm -hmm. the federal government for reparations on a federal level. Dr. Wow. Dr. Moore, real quick, in about 30 seconds, um, are there any black folks that are left out of uh, this opportunity for reparations in California? There's a lot of us that migrated uh, to California. Uh, my dad's from Ghana. My mom is from Florida. They migrated to California for work, like a lot of black folks. There are some people out there that say that folks like, like me, you know, should have no part in reparations in California. Who gets left out? Well, really quickly, the lineage standard that we adopted where you would be eligible if you are a descendant of someone who was enslaved or free and black in this country prior to 1900. So someone like you would be eligible because even though your mother migrated from Florida, presumably she is African-American or a descendant of someone who was enslaved in America on American soil. Uh, so. There's over 2.5 million black folks in California, uh, 300,000 or so of black immigrant origin would be included under the current motion um, that the task force uh, voted on. Uh, but that's not to say that all black folks, we all you know, deal with anti-blackness, uh, but there's a certain way that we can 
um, advocate for policies around racial equity uh, without conflating it with the sacred political project that is reparations uh, for the institution of slavery and those lingering badges and incidents that primarily affect the sentence of American slaves. And you see that with the wealth gap data in L.A., for instance, uh, you know, African-Americans who descend from slaves have an average wealth of two hundred dollars compared to seventy two thousand dollars for African blacks of immigrant origin and over one hundred and ten thousand for white Americans or Los Angelinos. So there's wealth disparities that that still stick on descendants of American slaves that really need addressing. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Moore, California Reparations Task Force. Come back again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. What about that? Uh, very interesting. I, you know, there's there's just a lot to take in. And my hope is that we get to a solution to where everybody can benefit. Mm -hmm. Everyone who, who should get reparations uh, mm -hmm. receives it. There's just so much to sort through. And uh, it's, it's good that we have uh, folks like uh, Dr. Moore who can kind of break it down to mm -hmm. us a little bit and are really leading that fight. Yeah. Uh, and really, really uh, anchoring uh, the argument for reparations. And there are a lot of eyes that are on California in terms of what this body is doing, what this task force is doing to address reparations. Um, you know, there are folks from around the world that are paying attention mm -hmm. because California is really zeroing in on just a whole menu of, of ways mm -hmm. for the government to uh, make people whole. And mm -hmm. so uh, I think a lot of people are going to be uh, refreshing their inboxes yeah. uh, once that yeah. report is released. From state to state, I'm hoping for uniformity so everybody can benefit the same kind of way. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of all eyes on something, Meghan Mar Merkel and Prince Harry have received their invitation to King Charles's, uh, King Charles III's coronation. Mm -hmm. But whether they'll <laughs> head to the UK for the May 6th crowning ceremony, uh, it's still unclear. A spokesperson for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex confirmed over the weekend that the Duke recently received an email correspondence from King Charles III's office regarding the coronation. Now, the invitation to the coronation comes just days after a spokesperson for the couple's Archwell Foundation confirmed last week that the couple have been asked to leave their UK home. Buckingham Palace had no comment. I don't know. I think they should go. Go on and go. Go on and go. I, think I the, mean, you the, know, just to, to make amends, uh, to, to be on site, uh, he, it sounds like an olive branch to me that dad has extended. Go ahead and go. And after, you know, Chris Rock said what he had to say about it, like, Megan, come on, you know what it was. <laughs> you know what it was. I mean, they are the, uh, they are the, the creators of colonialism, if you will, and, and racism, as uh, Chris Rock said in his special over the weekend. I, I think it's an olive branch. Go see what dad, go see what dad is talking about. I don't go know. Support I don't know if it's an olive branch. I mean, on one hand, and you say, get out, mm -hmm. <laughs> get out of the house. Did, right? did they say get out right. or did they decide to leave? My understanding is that they were asked to leave the house, right? Mm. And, and, and now the following week you get this invitation to, to, to the coronation by email, by the way. But family's still family. Family's still family, but that's uh, a rough one-two punch. <laughs> Just saying. All right, coming up, there's a major lawsuit being filed against ExxonMobil. That's right, we'll tell you about the racial incident that has the oil giant in hot water. You're watching Fox O's Black Report. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Fox Soul's Black Report. ExxonMobil is the target of a federal lawsuit. You don't say. So, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission says the oil giant failed to correctly address years of racial harassment experienced by black employees. So, that includes a total of five five nooses found at an Exxon facility in Louisiana between 2016 and 2020. The company investigated and banned two contractors, but the complaint says it did not take critical steps like training, counseling, or policy changes. You I mean, don't say. I mean, at my count, that's more than one noose a year, right? <laughs> You're about right. And so, and so how many nooses do you need in order to actually recognize something may be afoot in the culture of your company? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Certainly the culture of that particular location that's allowing for that to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, how many other clues do you need that this is probably a very hostile work environment, you know. Uh, I don't have to go to work, you don't have to go to work and worry about, you know, nooses just lying around. We know thousands of black folks have been uh, hung in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, this should be a true zero tolerance policy. Now, ExxonMobil, they say that they have a zero tolerance par uh, policy, but I can't tell. But you have to care. And you have to care in real life, and it really has to matter. And I mean, I know oil is essential, but to me, it's like, ah, uh, and you know, you put a Band-Aid on it, but this oil, get to this oil, get to digging, get to this money, get to this, don't, don't disturb this bottom line. Yeah, we agree it's not good, but we gotta keep this bottom line moving. So you gotta care for real. It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's about humanity and respect. Uh, and, and really dignity, but if you don't care in real life, you don't care, and that's, that's what might be coming out according to this article here. That's right, and when yeah. we talk about anti-black, mm -hmm. when we say anti-black, this is an example of what anti-blackness can look like. Falling asleep at the wheel by design, Ford Motor Company, their headquarters is right up the street here, launching a new component uh, to its automated driving system to take the concept of hands-free driving even further <laughs> and even repossess your car. Repossess? Yes, the Blue Oval's existing system allows certain models to self-drive within highway lanes as long as the human operator watches the road. The new tech means drivers won't have to pay attention at all. In fact, the goal is to eventually let you take a nap, but their newest patent also allows the company to repossess your car if you're behind in your payments and have the car drive itself <laughs> back to the dealership. You know, this isn't, this isn't too far off. There's a, a great NFL great icon legend. He passed in, in 2015, Mel Farr, uh -huh. a Lions great. He went on to own a, a slew of uh, car dealerships here in Detroit. Mel Farr, superstar. And he actually was sued because they were putting devices on cars to whereas when when your notes were late or you stopped paying them, the car would disable. So this isn't this is a too far fetch. Now that now now the fact that you know we're fast forwarding in technology and the fact that the car will, will drive itself back to the dealership, that's something a little different. But this isn't too far off from, from what's been happening in Detroit specifically. It probably makes it easier for hackers also to hack into the computer system of these cars. Could right. Be. I mean, it, you know, this might represent just sort of a bonanza for, mm -hmm. you know, folks that uh, uh, that pedal in in automotive theft, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but let me tell you, I ain't getting in no automated vehicle to drive me no. nowhere while I'm sleeping. Or, or taking a nap. 
I, I just, it just, it, that don't go together. It just, sleeping and driving just not I go look, together. It look really cool on the Jetsons. Mm-hmm. I don't think but we're there yet. Uh-uh. <laughs> gonna, gonna drive you somewhere you don't need to be. Okay. <laughs> well, this next story adds new meaning to the term black tax. According to a new report by the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, black married mm-hmm. couples in general pay more in tax costs than white married couples. Imagine that. Researchers say that black couples were more likely to face marriage penalties and less likely to receive marriage bonuses than white couples. Sources say that when tax filers in the U.S. get married, they can face a marriage bonus. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's when a household tax bill decreases because a couple files jointly and their incomes are, are desperate enough. Couples can also face marriage penalties when the tax bill increases. This generally happens when two people with similar incomes marry and file jointly. I remember us talking about this and, and I remember saying, look, you, you, know, you know, you try to do right by the system, you know, for those of us who try to keep it honest and try to stay on code, you know, you're filing your taxes, whether it's, you know, joint or, or, or separately. And then you have these underlying secretive, demonic, evil uh, uh, barriers at play and, and discriminations at play where the goalpost is always moving. And, and even when you try to be right about things, it, you, you're still like three steps behind yeah, when I it mean, comes to this discrimination and, and all of these uh, you know, red flags and stop signs and things of that nature. You're right, and people try to act like you know, the work of the IRS is race neutral. Mm-hmm. Well, not according to these reports that we've cited. Right. You know, they're saying that you know, the IRS is not race neutral. The, Very way that we, the way that our tax code is written mm-hmm. and the impact of our tax code is not race neutral. It actually has uh, you know, an, an unequal effect, a desperate effect you know, on black folks. And so, you know, again, when we talk about systemic racism, you know, that, that thing that, mm-hmm. that we learn from critical race theory and just critical that they thinking don't in teach, general. That they don't want to teach. Know, this is the quiet part <laughs> out loud, right? That there are systems at play mm-hmm. that are not working for us, but instead working against us. I agree. All right, the FDA is working to make it easier for Americans to choose nutritious foods with new labels, but many companies in the industry are pushing back. Now, instead of using daily percentages Uh, things like calories and saturated fat and sodium would be labeled as high, medium, or low. I think that makes it more Mm -hmm. simple. Uh, Some are even color-coded. Advocates say this is what nutrition labels look like in other countries, and the U.S. needs to get on board. However, some companies and lawmakers are upset because the new labels excludes certain companies or products that deem themselves as healthy. Well, we know that the healthy choice isn't always the easy choice. And just mm. because you call it healthy doesn't make it healthy. I was gonna say. And so if you go to the frozen food section, you know, and you look at, you know, I don't want to call it any particular company, but like mm-hmm. a lean cuisine or healthy choice, you look at the amount of sodium mm-hmm. that's in that thing, yep. right? I think the American Heart Association says you shouldn't have more than, I think, about 1,500 milligrams mm-hmm. of sodium a day, right? There are a lot of those meals that have that in one meal, right? And so the FDA is just trying to make it easier for the healthy choice to be the easy choice. And one of the quickest ways to do that is the way that they label food. You know, Michelle Obama had attempted to, to do something about this a while back, a, yeah. a while back, and they they screamed bloody murder. They did, it was a Just just Move campaign. I was a part of that uh, press corps, and we got and we got the exercise. And they really came down on her because she was just trying to shift the thinking uh, in regards to this lane. But you know, it's just hard out here for a health pimp like myself, <laughs> because even with the giving up meat and the imitation meat products, yeah. you know, there, there's, there's findings that 
things are in there that may cause cancer. So it's just so difficult to sift through anything. I think uh, these kind of simple uh, labels will really help out, at least to me. I think you're right. Yeah. Still ahead, creating venture capital for us by us. For Women's History Month, we'll introduce you to women who are changing the face of Silicon Valley. She's doing this all on her own, this particular woman here. Can't wait for you to check her out. Still ahead on Fox Soul's Black Report. Welcome back to Fox Hills Black Report. Well, trailblazing civil rights activist Polly Murray, also a personal hero, mm. is said to be featured on a U.S. quarter. Very exciting. Murray was the first black woman to become an ordained Episcopal priest. Murray's transformative contributions to advancing racial and gender equality will be celebrated through the 2024 American Woman uh, Quarters program. Now, the COIN series was curated to spread awareness about the historic and pivotal strides women have made throughout history. That's right. Murray joins a list of pioneering black women to be included in the American Women quarter, women's Quarter program, including Dr. Maya Angelou mm. and aviator Bessie Coleman. Yeah, we, we talked about this back when they first announced it, yeah. and I, I just want them to keep coming. My only thing is I would love them to be on a different type of tender. Let's get a let's get a bill going on. Uh -huh. I mean, when you just talk about how heavy these women walked in the world and the shifts that, that they were able to be a part of and cause, I want to see them on a, on a, on a Franklin <laughs> My, myself, <laughs> you know? But I mean, this, this honor is absolutely amazing and um, you know I've never thought about collecting coins yeah. but but I will you know now that this uh, you know has been launched I definitely will look for it for yeah. sure. I mean I think this is absolutely incredible mm -hmm. and, and and to think that you know we've never had women mm -hmm. on our currency mm -hmm. that, that you know that's still a glass ceiling mm -hmm. that exists in this country uh, and so every single time this happens whether it's Dr. Maya Angelou or Bessie Coleman on the quarter or now Polly Murray you know, I think it, it brings us more in step uh, in terms of being who we say we are, mm -hmm. right? Uh, equal justice under the law, it's, it's, it's hard for that to be true mm -hmm. if we can't even see gender equality on our tender. Yeah, and, and, and definitely plenty of women that they can continue to honor, coin by coin by coin. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see who else they continue to roll out yeah. for sure. All right, retired uh, Colonel Paris Davis finally received his Medal of Honor on Friday at the White House for his bravery in the Vietnam War. Now listen. This is, this, somebody should be ashamed of themselves. The belated recognition for the 83-year-old Virginia resident came after the recommendation for his medal was lost, resubmitted, and then lost again. Who lost their job? Somebody need to lose their job over this. It mm. wasn't until 2016, a half century after Davis risked his life to save some of his men under fire, that advocates recreated and submitted the paperwork. Davis is one of the first black officers to lead a special forces team in combat. He then became a captain and commander with the 5th Special Forces Group. Well, I'm just glad that they finally got this right, you know, but, like who but, does but, that? but why did it take, you know, so many submissions and resubmissions in order to give him uh, his just due? You know, I, I know things fall through the cracks, but you got to care. 
These are the men and women who sacrificed their lives, families, you know, their, their homeland, you know, away for, for long tours, in the midst of battle, survived that thing. And, and just think about how he may have felt. Yeah, I'm getting honored. Oh, they lost it. I mean, what, kind of, who, what kind of phone call is that? So I'm glad he finally got his, his just due and his flowers now, but shame on whoever, you know, is responsible for that. And it also makes you wonder, well, you know, how many other situations are there out there where folks paperwork has gotten lost mm. in the mail, mm. has gotten lost, you know, somewhere in the federal government, right? I mean, there's a whole generation of, of folks, particularly black folks, that given so much uh, through our military. Yeah. And the fact that they're still not getting their just this due. This is 2016. Everything is on a, dry, a hard drive somewhere. No, no excuses. Uh, well, the Board of Trustees of State Institutions of Higher Learning in Mississippi have placed Thomas Hudson, president of Jackson State University, on administrative leave with pay effective immediately. The board is named Dr. Elaine Hayes Anthony as temporary acting president of JSU effective immediately. Mm. Hayes Anthony currently serves as chair and professor of the Department of Journalism and Media Studies at JSU. She is a Jackson native and was the first African-American woman news anchor at a local television station. Officials nice. did not release any additional details about why Hudson was placed on administrative leave. Everybody wants to know. All right, March is Women's History Month and there's one sister who is making history in the world of venture capital. That's right, that's right. Fox's Andre Sr. shows us how one of the nation's few black female venture capitalists in a field overwhelmingly white and male is bringing a fresh set of eyes to funding startup companies. In the tech capital of the world, black startup founders are still rare. Rare are still black female venture capitalists. One of them is Monique Woodard. I was seeing so many interesting companies, but didn't really see any black entrepreneurs who were venture backed. And that's among the reasons she recently ventured out onto her own, launching Cake Ventures, joining a tiny but growing list of female venture capitalists, providing a new and different set of eyes when it comes to investing in startups. I think I've been able to identify really talented people who don't look like what Silicon Valley thinks of when they think of a startup founder. While working for other venture capital firms, what help get off the ground the internet media company Blavity, which was created by and for black millennials, and beauty supply company Mended Cosmetics, which was founded by K.J. Miller. But Cake Ventures is her own company, where she raises her own capital to invest in companies she believes her funds can scale. I think my ability to recognize talent in people who are wildly intelligent um, are amazing builders, but don't necessarily look like what uh, you might think of when you think of a, an archetype of a startup founder. To understand why her position is so unique, one need only look at the numbers. A survey by NVCA Deloitte found that in 2020, eight out of 10 VC investment partners were white. While TechCrunch reported that in 2018, black women founders only received 0.27% of all U.S. VC funding. There are a lot of other black investors and lots of black entrepreneurs who are doing amazing work and you know, really trying to put their stamp on the future of technology and the future of business. Overall, research shows black founders are still having a tough time landing capital to fund their businesses, which is why Woodson's launch of Cake Ventures is significant. I think finding these entrepreneurs and finding them early and highlighting them and highlighting their successes is how we really start to show people that, look, there are 
wonderful businesses to be invested in, in this category and in this space, and wonderful founders who are doing things that are unique, um, and we should be investing in them. And time now for Today in Black History. And this entire month, we're highlighting the achievement of women for Women's History Month. That's right. And today, for our Black History Moment, we're remembering her story. And in honor of Oscar Week, here are a few important moments. All right, so let's start in 1940. Hattie McDaniel won Best Supporting Actress for her role as Mamie in Gone with the Wind, making her the first black person to win an Academy Award. And in 2002, Halle Berry became the first mm. black actress to earn an Academy Award in a lead role for Monsters yeah, Ball. Yeah, she actually thanked Hattie on that uh, win there. And today, we say her name, Latasha Harlins. On this day, back in 1991, Latasha, an unarmed 15-year-old African-American girl was shot and killed by a Korean-American store owner for allegedly stealing a bottle of orange juice. Now, the store owner was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and given a sentence of five years probation, 400 hours of community service, and a $500 fine. Now, after a recommended 16-year uh, in jail, that's what the recommendation was. Now, Harlan's story and the trial outcome would shake South Central LA to its core and became a major contributing factor to the 1992 Los Angeles civil unrest and is featured in a new film starring Holly Berry. And so a lot of people focus in on Rodney King, uh, but this story right here mm -hmm. also weighed heavy uh, with those folks in, in Los Angeles and really, really fueled that fire and, and really caused that combustion that, that we all uh, remember. That's right. That's right. We, we, we remember it very well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, decades later, the community is still, still, healing, still healing, you know, uh, from that. That's right. But firmly on the healing path, but still healing nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And so it's really great to see, you know, Halle Berry, mm -hmm. you know, telling this kind of story. Mm -hmm. You know, this is... Uh, uh, I haven't seen her in a role like this since, uh, was it Losing Isaiah? Was that mm -hmm. the film that she did mm -hmm. many years ago? Mm -hmm. And so um, a different kind of choice for, for Halle Berry these days. Uh, but uh, also just want to go back to the black venture capital uh, story. Sure. Um, you know, the fact that 0.27% of mm. black women you know, uh, have gotten venture capital investments, you know, that should shock the conscience of anybody and everybody that's doing business in Silicon Valley. There are billions upon billions of dollars circulating in the venture capital world. And the fact that, that black folks, particularly black women, get a fraction of a fraction of that. Of a fraction of a fraction. Ain't no way. Well, up next, there's a major apology coming from mm. one NBA player. Plus, Uncle Snoop and Dr. Dre are joining forces again. We'll tell you why when we return. You're watching Fox Soul's Black Report. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, a California court overturned a murder conviction because of a new law limiting the use of rap videos as evidence. Trayvon Venable Sr. was sentenced to 129 years to life for a 2019 drive-by shooting, but 
the court found the rap video presented as evidence was uh, prejudicial. Now, the new law requires courts to balance the value of creative expression against the danger of undue prejudice. Prosecutors allege the rap lyrics in the video reference the shooting, but the judges disagreed. Now, the decision has sparked debate on using creative expression as evidence in criminal cases. Herein lies yet another another case here that uh, is being heavily debated. You're right, you're right. And, and you know, folks that are part of the creative community are saying, wait a minute, mm -hmm. you know, um, a big part of, of our work is using our imagination, mm -hmm. right? And just because we may rap about things, just because there might be certain lyrics that may sound real or feel real, doesn't mean, you know, that they are real. And, and they shouldn't be used as evidence uh, against us in the court of law. But I think folks on the other side of the argument are saying, uh, but when it plays out in real life and, you know, you go back and you listen to the lyrics and then something very similar or exactly the same thing happens in real life, I can see why they would lean on these lyrics to sort of kind of prove a case. You know, and I think that's part of the reason why the judge says you got to balance this out, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. judge was essentially saying, hey, prosecutors, you were overreaching. Mm -hmm. And especially if if a man's freedom is on the line. I mean, this guy was facing 129 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, under the jail, under the jail, under the jail, right? And and so anybody that's, that's looking to face that kind of time, you know, uh, you should make sure that I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And if there's reasonable doubt that, you know, maybe he didn't do it, maybe he was just, you know, rapping about it, but he wasn't about that life, uh, then that needs to be taken into account. And, and thank goodness there was a law that was passed in California that was signed into law by Governor Newsom at the top of uh, 2022 that, that saved him from 129 years in prison. No reasonable doubt here because we saw what we saw. The NBA is investigating Memphis Grizzlies star Jay Morant after he recently posted a live stream of himself holding what appeared to be a gun inside a nightclub. Now, the NBA announced that uh, he will miss at least two games. Morant is already under investigation for the alleged assault of a teenager over the summer. He has since responded on social media saying, uh, quote, he takes full responsibility for his actions and will take time to get help. I mean, you know, this is just a bonehead decision, mm -hmm. I think, you know, holding up a gun on social media, like, what are you trying to do? Hey. You know, are you are you trying to intimidate somebody? Are you trying to show that, you know, you know you're powerful, that you're strong, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, young people are going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I appreciate the fact he's taken full responsibility. He's taken the time to go get the help that he needs uh, to figure this thing out. And so, uh, you know, it's it's terrible that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's it's uh, taken him off the court where he's uh, he's a pretty good player. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, this is a situation that could have gone from zero to 100 he's, in five seconds. He's basically hustling backwards. You've got a $200 million contract. You've got sports drinks. You've got apparel. Uh, there was a, a recent um, uh, podcast where it featured uh, Tracy McGrady and Matt Barnes, who would be considered OGs now in the game. And they said they saw much early on that the Memphis Grizzlies needed a vet on the team because they saw these guys spiraling out. And herein lies uh, this issue here. And Matt Barnes says something really interesting to me. He said, but you know what? We clowned like that, too. It just wasn't on video. Mm. So very interesting fallout. A lot of conversation throughout, you know, black Twitter in particular all weekend long. So we'll see how this plays out for this young man. Mm. 
Well, Deion Sanders, former head coach at Jackson State and current coach of the University of Colorado, he recently met with the leaders of Colorado's marching band to lay the groundwork for the upcoming football season. Sanders talked about having a level of synergy similar to what goes on at HBCUs and mentioned that he wants the band to coincide with the team. He also revealed <laughs> he also revealed plans to have a new theme song for the team, which he hopes the band will execute. While some have debated whether Sanders is is pirating HBCU band culture, many are looking forward to seeing what the new theme will be and how Colorado will execute. Give it. me my theme music. Listen, <laughs> Coach Prime, I feel you because a lot of these uh, predominantly white institutions, these bands are tapping into HBCU band culture. You can see it, you know, during their, their halftime uh, shows and even in the stands. You can see them take a little taste of what we do. But prime time, you have left that world. <laughs> you are in Colorado, sir. They already at you about praying and, and, and throwing Jesus into everything like we do. I don't know. He, he might be, you know, listen, I, maybe they might, you know, accommodate him. But then again, don't be surprised if you get a little pushback. You're not in that world anymore, sir. I get it, though. But, but. you know what? I appreciate that Coach Primetime is unapologetically himself. He's unapologetically himself, whether he's at Jackson State or Colorado. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not assimilating to the culture there, mm -hmm. right? But he's bringing the culture, you know, with him. And I think that's a good thing. I, I, I think it will fundamentally uh, change not just the football program at the University of Colorado, but apparently it's going to change the band program. Pick, and who knows, it may change the gospel choir too. Pick your battles. You're not going to just redo what's been done for years on top of years when you talk about these predominantly white institutions. Pick your battles, get that team together, and let's see what you got uh, come this football season. He said he's going to try. Mm -hmm. He's going to do it all. The Wash, a 2001 film starring Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, is the latest movie receiving a modern day reboot. Now, the original cast, which included homie Eminem, you got Luda and Shaq uh, was a who's who of major hip-hop artists at the time. While the TV show adaptation's uh, release date has yet to be announced, it has been confirmed that it is in the works. DJ Pooh, the original uh, film's writer and director, teased the show's development in December 2022 and recently shared a photo promoting the forthcoming adaptation. It remains unclear if any of the original cast members will be involved in the project. Uh, Nicole and I take my black card now because I didn't see the watch. <laughs> and, and, I, and I love that genre of movies, but uh, you know, eventually they got a little silly to me. You know, mm -hmm. Friday, yeah, I got that, but then the spinoff one sort of kind of got silly to me and I didn't, I fell out of interest with them. I just think it's another example of Snoop Dogg winning. You know, we we talked about Snoop Dogg's wine. You know, He's Snoop Dogg has had his legendary. show with uh, with Martha Stewart, right? You know, Snoop Dogg. Uh, you know, he just continues to inject himself. Yeah. You know, into pop culture. And people have noticed that Chris Rock over the weekend during the uh, the special said he thinks he saw a Snoop Dogg <laughs> <laughs> promoting or selling reverse mortgages, <laughs> doggages. He is so he everywhere. stays so relevant. He's got the formula. He really does. All right, still ahead, black ex. Excellence, our favorite time of the day, and we're talking about Shaq again. That's right. We'll tell you about what he's doing for black students. It's going to ease burdens for so many. Hmm. You're watching Fox News Black Report. We'll be right back. Yeah, you can have my black card. I didn't watch that. <laughs> Well, 
Welcome back to Fox Hills Black Report. NBA legend Shaquille O'Neal launched a new program that will continue empowering young students, setting up Students for Success is a nine-month curriculum for middle school students to guide and develop their social and emotional skills while also providing influence for good role models. Shaq is such that deal. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, the mentorship program features a parental component to empower and engage parents to offer insight on closing the communication gap between parents and their kids. Now, the foundation also has an annual sports camp teaching the fundamentals of various sports with a strong focus on sportsmanship and teamwork. That's right. Shaq partnered with the Henry's County Sheriff's Foundation in Georgia to not only launch the program, but to also upgrade the meeting facility with new furniture and additional equipment. Very nice. He is just so generous. He is, and it's it's the little things that you don't hear about, how yeah. you know he paid for a family's meal, mm -hmm. or he saw a young boy trying to you know buy some shoes in a mall and, and paid for them. Shaq really, you know, he's just wired right, in in my opinion. Yeah. He just gets it, and you know, I, I've said this before, your getting is in your giving, and I feel like the more he gives away the more he gets. That's why you see him. We just talked about Snoop. You see Shaq endorsing everything as well from from icy hot to to insurance. I mean, and he's just that guy. Yeah, yeah and, he's and, just that guy. And it's also important that he's targeting middle school students because mm -hmm. that is that's a really critical point in an adolescence development, right? Mm -hmm. That's when we seem to, to lose some of our boys, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 you know there are, are issues that our girls start to develop, you know, in middle school. So the fact that this program is focused Focusing on success for middle school students, I think that's outstanding. And you know, look, you know, we talk a lot about law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Clearly, Shaq is uh, partnering with one of the local uh, sheriff's departments there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, a, a number of, of of really important stakeholders and community coming together to support our kids during a very critical time. All right, salute to Shaq. And uh, talk about a salute here. Back in 1915, Woodrow Wilson was president, and World War One was ongoing. It's also the year Cosmos Eaglin. Think about that name, Cosmos. I love it. Was born in January, uh, and he celebrated his 180th birthday. Yeah, his 108th birthday. During his lifetime, he witnessed many changes, and some of his most treasured memories are of his military service. At the age of 27, he served during World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam uh, War, and one of the first. 300 black recruits to break the Marine Corps color barrier after President Roosevelt issued an executive order in 1941 requiring all branches of the military to accept people of color. Now, now of, of the 16 million Americans who served in World War II, only about 167,000 were still alive. That was back in 2022. Now, that's according to the Department of Veterans Affairs. Eaglin is among this shrinking group of veterans who hold uh, so much history and so much knowledge. And you mean to tell me he is 108 years old? That is amazing. Look, he don't look like what he been through. No, that is amazing, That's amazing, right. amazing. And so, you know, my hope is that we will just continue to, you know, unearth all of these stories. Could you just imagine if he's just that one person mm -hmm. and whoever he served with, because you saw that troop of all black men, could you imagine the, those are all stories that are probably just as untold or a little buried as his was. And so that's why we always have to keep digging. And, and finding these stories and honoring and bringing them to light. That's right. Yeah. That's one of the stories I, I enjoy, uh, you know, sharing, especially mm -hmm. when it com comes to 
are military folks, people who have served mm -hmm. our country with honor, mm -hmm. right? We owe it to them. Don't let me live to be 108 in my right <laughs> mind, too. My grandmother in love is, she'll be turning 106 oh, wow. or 105. In her right mind, everything, a little snuff on the side. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Talk about God's grace. All right, for the full rundown on today's stories like this and more, you can access Fox Soul's video on demand on any of our partners. You can even access past shows and other black-centered content. And don't forget, Soulmate, you've got to download the Foxo app. It is absolutely free. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. This is this has been a, a great show. A yeah. lot of show. Enjoyed you. Enjoyed you. Well, well, let me just say again, today is Ghana Independence Day. And, you know, my dad was born and raised in Ghana uh, when Ghana was still under British rule in mm. 1950. He was seven years old when I'm they declared you. their independence. And so to all the Ghanaians that are watching us, uh, uh, you know, here in the United States and streaming around mm. the world, uh, a happy Independence Day. We cannot take that for granted. You know how to cook Ghanaian food? You of, know how to cook? Of course. What's your favorite Ghanaian dish? What's the national dish? Like uh, school me, do you know? I mean, well, Is it there are lots of different dishes, but I love peanut butter stew. <laughs> What's that look? Nothing. I've just never had it. I'm open to it. Peanut butter stew. Yeah, peanut butter stew. What's it's, in it's it? It's delicious. Besides peanut butter. Stew. <laughs> Happy Independence Day. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm the Cordelia Corte. Until next time, stay lifted. You don't know how to cook it because you don't. You, you do. ain't tell me what was really in it. You talking about some stew. I stew, said stew is in the stew. You asked me what was in it, I answered your question.